The war in Ukraine created a new global energy crisis, while at the same time, the Biden administration's Inflation Reduction Act is making a historic investment in solar and renewable energy. The question remains whether the transition away from fossil fuels can keep pace with renewable sectors' capacity as a reliable source of energy for the U.S. economy. During our latest forward thinking session at FEI, we sat down with Cypress Creek Renewables Chief Financial Officer, Trace Pritmecki, about how the energy industry is changing and the role of renewables. Afternoon, everybody. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Um, I'm looking. Uh, I'm looking forward to this conversation. I hope you are too. Um, and, and it's part of our series, our forward-thinking series, um, talking to financial leaders in different industry sectors and um, really diving down into what they're thinking and how they work on problems and issues and um, you know how they attack the industry from their perspectives of, as a financial executive. And we're really lucky today um, to have uh, William Trace Pitmecki. He's the chief financial officer of Cypress Creek Renewables. Um, Cypress Creek is really one of the leaders in the renewable energy space. And, you know, if you listen to our previous um, uh forward-thinking uh, session on this. We talked with the chief accounting officer, Halliburton, to get their perspective from the fossil fuel industry. And we really want to take time to speak to uh, Trace about um, what he's thinking about the renewable sector, where it fits in, and and sort of how he, he uh, thinks about the uh, energy industry. So, uh, uh, Trace, thanks for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Ah, thanks for having me. It's, it's great to be here. Look forward to the conversation. You, we always like to start these conversations, especially given the audience, talking a little bit about like your journey to here. And and you have a very you know particular journey. Um, you you started out, if I understand it correctly, in public accounting, and then you spent a big chunk of your career in you know the traditional energy industry. How did you end up at uh, Cypress Creek and and in the renewable sector? Yeah, it's, it's a great question because it's I didn't necessarily have the the same path as many. I did start my career at Price Waterhouse even before Coopers was part of the part of the firm, and so it's been a while. And I was actually in the public utility consulting group, so wasn't on the accounting side, um, but on the utility side, and that was a great experience because not only did I get to do utility work and industry and energy industry work, but was also getting to see a lot of different clients, whether those were, um, say, investor-owned utilities or munis, even co-ops. And seeing the different cultures and the different business models of each of those was fascinating. And one of my clients at the time was Southern California Edison. And after working with them for probably a couple of years through Pricewaterhouse, I ended up taking a job with them. Um, in Los Angeles or just outside of Los Angeles. And that's really where I started my journey with the Edison family of companies. And I spent over 20 years wow. with the, the Edison family. And that started at Southern California Edison doing primarily regulatory and then fi finance work in the Treasury Department. After spending several years in those roles, I moved out of Southern California Edison 
to Edison International, the parent company. There, I primarily worked on financial planning and investor relations. After that, I moved back to Southern California Edison to do risk management. And this was an interesting part of my career because prior experience at Southern California Edison was what I'll call the rate-based side of the company, really the assets that are related to primarily customers distribution transmission, but not really energy trading. And risk management got me involved on the utility side of energy trading. After only being there for maybe two years, I moved again from Southern California Edison to Edison Mission. Edison Mission at the time was our independent power producer that had a fleet of coal, gas, and wind. So we really ran the gambit of energy choices and were selling those primarily to other utilities. So my, my risk opportunity really laid the groundwork to the work at the IPP. Unfortunately, and we can talk about the reasons for this, that IPP went bankrupt. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I got to the company only about a month before we, we filed for bankruptcy. So I think I was part of the team that was there to, to go through that process. And then when that process was done and we sold the company to NRG, I ended up coming back to Southern California Edison, where I was the treasurer and then CFO for, for about five years. That's interesting. That leads, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I will, right. Okay, yeah, I was just going to say, so after 20 years plus at Edison, made the decision that, one, I've always loved solar. And a little bit on my my background prior to working, I went to college, got degrees in economics and physics. So energy has always been a big part in energy economics, a big part of who I am. And solar is one of those technologies that's been on the cusp, but never quite there. Mm -hmm. And we finally reached a tipping point, both economically, um, technologically, politically, that it really is becoming a, a source of energy that's competitive with many others. And we're just at the very beginning of that ramp up. So when I look in the across the industry, and I think, where's the growth going to be? And what are the changes going to be? And what's going to fuel that growth? Solar definitely is going to play a role in that. So when I had the opportunity to go to a solar company in solar with storage, that had a, a, I'll say, relatively long history for solar, but Mm. a very new company that has a operating fleet that's substantial, plus an equity backer that's very supportive of the company and a great management team. It was an easy choice to to join Cypress Creek. So it sounds like from your career, um, you know, focused on energy, you were always like touching on the renewable space or, or worked in some respect with the renewable space. Um, going from utilities into Cypress Creek into strictly renewables, ha- was that a big learning curve for you? Just maybe not from the technical aspects, but just from the, the management aspect of it? You know, it's interesting. From renewables, from utility to renewable, not as much 
simply because it felt a little bit like moving from a buyer to a seller. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some things that are very similar. Um, safety, reliability, those are things at both companies we talked about all the time. Yeah. Um, there are some things that are very different. You know, at a solar company, especially a solar company that's less than 10 years old, we are we have a workforce that is very, very mission focused. Mm. And not to say that the utility wasn't, but now I know what truly mission focused <laughs> is. The folks, the people that I'm working with truly love this industry, truly believe in it, and they are are making big changes. It's also interesting to move from an organization of approximately 15,000 people to under 500 people. Yeah. One, it's it's strange just because of the magnitude of those numbers. But then two, it's very similar in the sense that I still probably work very closely with 20 people um, or 30 people. And that's true in both companies. And in fact, it's it's interesting with a with a smaller company, I believe I work with more people because we're really getting our hands dirty um, and getting our hands dirty together and we're working closely together. So on one hand, it's a much smaller company, but on the other hand, it feels bigger in the sense that we're all working together in a different collaborative way. Maybe we could take a step back and, and I think it'd be a good thing for the audience to say, what exactly does Cypress Creek do? What What is, what is the uh, business model? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. And, and it's one that we're untangling and really mm-hmm. making sure everybody understands both internally and externally what it is that we do. We, we are known as a developer that we develop projects, but really when you look at our company, we, we have three divisions that are three very different companies in the sense of business models. One is the development group, and it is the largest and arguably the most profitable that is going from an idea to having a construction-ready project. So that means getting all of the regulatory um, items in place, getting all the permitting, getting everything, getting a contract with an off-taker, that may be a utility or a industrial customer, could be Starbucks, Walmart, Microsoft, a company like that. Um, and, then, and then ultimately, those developed but not constructed projects are sold. We either sell those to third parties or we sell them internally to our fleet, which gets to our second group, which is our second division, which is our fleet, which is... 217 solar projects that we've developed and retained for ourselves. It's two two gigawatts of power. And putting that in perspective, two gigawatts powers about one and a half million households. And thinking about Edison, and again, remember Edison with 15,000 employees, um, Edison serves about five million households. So you can see kind of the the scale of Cypress Creek, even though we're very small in some measures, we're also very big to have a fleet of two gigawatts. Yeah, no, I can imagine that. 
brings us to our third division, which we call O&M Solutions. And that's in essence, the division that maintains the fleet for ourselves and maintains the fleet fleets of other owners. And we, we service about four gigawatts of solar. So our two gigawatts plus third parties of another two gigawatts. And, you know, that's everything from vegetation management, panel cleaning, repairs, um, ongoing maintenance. And those make up our, our three key business divisions. And again, very different as far as the business model, the development business model, I compare a little bit to the oil field of drilling holes and hopefully getting hits. Mm. And just like the oil business, the more information you have, the better you you start from. If you have good information, what's the right market, who's the right off taker, you're more likely to, to hit a hole that, that's a gusher. Um, but it is, it's a risky business because you're putting in investment without knowing exactly what the outcome will be. But when it is good, it's, it's, it can be very good as opposed to the fleet, which is much more like an annuity. So thinking about that business model, you know, when you, when you get solar constructed, you really have low operating costs, no fuel costs. So you're just trying to maintain those at optimal performance to get the most cash out of them. And the cash comes from two sources, either a contract that you have with your off taker, and that may be for hundred percent of the output, or you can have some that is merchant that you're taking, you're selling into the market and you're getting the advantages of higher power prices or the disadvantage of lower power prices. And that's something that we're always balancing is how much um, contracted compared to merchant we want to take. And then O&M Solutions, similar to fleet, but it is a service business. Not a lot of capital investment in solutions, but there's a lot of people and we are, it's, it's a competitive market and we just need to be as technologically advanced and as efficient as possible so that we can squeeze out margins from those contracts we have. So three related businesses, but very different business models. That has to be, um, you know, coming from where you were in the, um, you know, the previously to where you are now that had, what was sort of the learning curve or, or do you think it was, I mean, it, it seems even with a small team that you're dealing with a lot on your plate in terms of de development, in terms of delivery, um, what sort of learning curve were you looking at? You know, I think a big part of the learning curve is moving from a public company with over a century of financial history mm. to a private equity backed firm that's less than 10 years old. Yeah. Um, and there's a piece of, of being with a firm for a long time, you know, say personally, where the notes and the financials tell tell you a lot but you've lived through them hmm. so you really have a good feel for what they mean when you when you leave a firm and come to a new firm and you haven't lived through those experiences it's 
it's, it is a big learning yeah. curve. It's understanding what's happened in the past that's going to drive the future. So I've only been with Cypress for about six months, and that's been the challenge of really understanding where we are and where we're going. As I mentioned before, there the three divisions, we are clearly separating those out today, but historically, before O&M was providing services outside of our own fleet, it was really just considered part of fleet. Mm. So there's the all of that intertwined and were there really margins for the the solutions part of the business or did was that meaning the fleet was getting better margins because they were just getting charged less for the O&M services. Right. But now that we've broken those out, we're really able to pinpoint um, the efficiencies between those two businesses. And it's those sorts of things that are um, can be a rapid learning curve. Um, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was, I was going to say the other thing, just looking at our company, that we, we're only nine years old, but we're really in our third chapter, where our first chapter was founding and just starting from nothing, getting a few projects going, and becoming a company and then shortly after founding we went through a longer period and i'll call it rapid unbridled growth Mm -hmm. that we figured out that formula in the founding chapter to really grow quickly but unfortunately with really rapid growth you don't put all the controls in place you maybe get a little ahead of your skis and that brought us to our our third chapter that we're now in, where we're stabilizing the existing company and existing fleet, and then setting ourselves a foundation for much more rapid growth, bigger growth, but much more controlled. But we have backing that will allow us to to do this growth in a measured way, even though it will be very large. And I think about those three chapters and coming into a company at this stage and just understanding that history and then putting it in perspective to say where we're going in the future. Yeah, that's interesting. And I, 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 I just want to remind the audience that um, feel free to uh, type questions into the uh, question box and we'll get to them as we go through it. Um, or you can wait to the end um, when we have the final minutes. But uh, I encourage you, if you have anything at top of mind, please feel free to ask. Um, Trace, I wanted to talk, you know, get out, step back a little bit and talk about what's been going on in the energy market over the past year. Obviously, a lot of volatility. A lot of, um, you know, even with what's going on with Ukraine or just overall price instability. What are the secondary effects in the renewable sector as, you know, you see that energy price volatility um, from fossil fuels? I mean, what, what impact is that having on your, your business? It, the short answer, whenever fossil fuels costs go up, that benefits the renewable industry, mm-hmm. especially solar. Although that is a short-term benefit, um, unless we see these, these fossil fuel prices climbing over the long term, um, 
So keeping in mind, we do contract out and we have contracts. So unless we go merchant, we're not necessarily getting those benefits. Although it does mean that contracts we're signing today are higher than they have been in the past. Mm. So we are getting those benefits. But I think the greatest benefit that we see, although it's it's a scary thing, and it should, I think probably scary for everyone, is how reliant we are on fossil fuels. Mm. And that Russia can go into a, a conflict that can cause what it's caused in in Europe and even to the United States to some degree and how important our energy independence is and the things that we need to be doing to be less reliant on fossil fuels and renewables are, are a piece of that puzzle for sure. Does it affect your even your own costs? I mean, obviously your trucks have to use I would assume they're not all solar powered. You're going to use gas, and and I mean, I assume you're figuring that all into it. Yes, we we do. Unfortunately, we we don't have a huge fuel expense. We we do have a fuel expense, and it has gone up, um, but that really hasn't been a big driver for us mm-hmm. as far as as cost. General inflation, labor inflation, has certainly been an is- issue, and. For the solar industry overall, supply chain has probably been the bigger issue. Yeah. And um, just getting things delivered on time um, and, and materials being available. So less than the fuel for trucks. Yeah, I, I, then I, I've seen some things about that, uh, especially about solar pa- panels coming out of China and, and, and some of the challenges with that. How, how are you managing that and how, do you, how does that figure into your planning? You know, it's it's very important to us that we're getting our panels from reputable vendors mm-hmm. that are doing things in the right way. And to that end, we have worked with two other partners to create a U.S. buyers consortium where we've committed to making big purchases of domestically produced panels to give the incentive to to the manufacturers to put facilities in the United States. So that's a big piece of it. And along with the recent legislation that gives incentive for domestically manufactured or sourced um, panels is is also very helpful. And then second is to diversify Mm -hmm. and look at countries other than China, being um, the Philippines, Mexico, Germany, Mm -hmm. to look for other alternatives. Yeah, so I, it, piece. yeah, and I, I don't think you're the only industry rethinking, you know, supply chain distribution and and where they're they're sourcing materials from. Um, we have one question um, coming from the audience, um, and I guess it, you know the broader question is about expansion. Uh, the, the one person asked, "Are there any plans to come into Florida?" They are literally the Sunshine State, so um, obviously an <laughs> opportunity there. But what are what are your plans for expansion but where do you see um how does that work when you're a solar solar developer yeah well we are currently in 14 states and florida is one of those so we it's not our biggest state by any means um it's more in the carolinas illinois um we have some really big assets in texas new york is an area um new jersey 
But our expansion is really related to regulatory regimes mm. that are looking for renewables. So we're finding the right markets with the right offtake agreements that have the ability for us to interconnect on the grid. And those states that I mentioned are ones that are very favorable. So we will continue to to grow and, and hopefully grow rapidly, both in solar and then also in storage. As I'm sure everybody's aware, like wind, solar, the sun doesn't always shine, the wind doesn't always blow. So renewables need that um, energy storage to become a dispatchable um, asset on the grid. And once a battery's in place, then solar can ramp up even faster than a peaking gas plant. Mm -hmm. Peaking gas plants may need an hour to get started where the battery will dispatch instantaneously. So, so that really will change the dynamic of the market. And we're growing with standalone storage, meaning just storage that's on the system that's getting energized during the low use points in the day or the evenings, nights, and then dispatching when energy is most needed. Additionally, we're um, building new solar assets with energy storage connected. And also we're retrofitting our existing fleet when appropriate with energy storage. So there, our growth includes just growing the solar fleet, but also adding storage. Great. Are, are those, um, I want to ask you, are those um, conversations with different, um, whether it's state or local regulatory bodies, or are they getting easier? I was reading something earlier about how, um, you know, renewables are, are going to overtake coal as a largest source of electricity worldwide, you know, just by 2025. Um, do you think, um, you know, whether it's policymakers or whoever, do you think that perception is changing? Are those, are those discussions becoming easier? They are definitely becoming easier. And I wouldn't say that they're easy. Mm-hmm. And there is a, a partisan divide mm-hmm. that I have to admit I don't fully understand. Yeah. But the reality is the technology and the economics of of solar are making sense. And it's taken a long time. So there there was a period where they just it, it hadn't reached the point where it made sense to install solar. It's now reached that point that it's becoming economically efficient to do so. Part of that relates to high fuel prices, as you mentioned earlier, which is probably a short-term phenomenon, but people are understanding that these spikes do happen. Um, But we also see the curve on solar coming down, the pricing curve, even though there's been what we believe is a temporary increase just because of supply chain, the technology is changing much like it did with the um, silicon wafer that we're able to produce more output at a lower cost panel. So we're seeing those economics, which just make that conversation with policymakers that much easier. And we have a, uh, actually a follow-up question from the audience in regards to expansion. How long does it take you f- to break into a new market? That's a great question. And it 
that's part of the struggle with the development group that it can take years to develop a project two three years um, and a lot of that has to do with just the regulatory process that there's 60-day comment periods and getting to know the right people um, so it, it can be a slow process alternatively there can be times when the local utility is really looking for solar to come online quickly and they put a request for proposals out and in under six months we may be able to go from not having a project to having a fully developed project that's rare but there's there's a relatively wide range i should also mention that our solar projects go everywhere from very large utility scale projects to much smaller distributed generation projects, which are more dispatched at the distribution level, maybe um, projects within a city, not solar rooftops, but smaller, much smaller projects in the big utility um, scale um, facilities. And those smaller, we call them distributed generation facilities, usually are much quicker to get up and running just because of permitting and, and other, um, other things that could delay the process. Market fluctuations, risky customers, non-payment events, oh my. How does a lumber company like Weston Forest Products stay ahead of bad debt that comes with the unstable economy? With risk mitigation solutions from Alliance Trade, Alliance Trade offers a proactive risk management approach with tailored tools and resources that help companies from all industries grow their businesses safely and with peace of mind. As the president and CEO of Weston Forest Products says, quote, one of the main reasons Alliance Trade is a great partner is that they know our industry. They have made our risk management policies better. It's given us more structure, more accountability, and made us a better company. It allows me to sleep better, and that is worth a lot. What is a good night's rest worth to you? Get a free quote today from Alliance Trade at alliance-trade.us. You know, it's, it, that's interesting too, because we were talking to, when we were talking to the um, Chief Accounting Officer at Halliburton, he was talking about the, the long time it takes to develop new energy. And it's interesting that, you know, obviously on different timelines, but sort of similar in, in uh, the length. Um, one thing I wanted to ask, you know, the um, renewables are a big part of the Inflation Reduction Act that was passed last or this year. Um, and, and that's putting a lot of money into the sector. How does that change Cypress Creek's approach, you know, particularly from a, a planning and financial planning perspective? Yeah. It, fundamentally, it really doesn't change our approach, but it does make us willing to invest more money and invest that money quicker. So it does exactly what it was intended to do of just getting more money invested in this sector. Hmm. Um, key, key elements to the, the legislation, I guess the fundamental piece is an investment tax credit and production tax credits that really give the incentive to do more, more solar, more renewables. Included in that are benefits for putting these plants in what are referred to as energy communities. And that may be something like the location where an old coal plant was. 
that the coal plant's been taken out and we use that land for for renewables have um, um, understand that it is an, an energy community. So there are benefits to that. Likewise, low-income communities bringing in resources that will bring more prosperity, that's a benefit. Plus, there are prevailing wage requirements, and we've had to think through those. And um, But for the most part, we're already at the prevailing wage. And then the last piece is domestic content and giving benefits for domestic content. So again, all of these we think are really good, things that we've been pushing as a company. And again, not things that we're changing because all of these we have been pushing and have said they're very important. And now we're just wanting to do more because this policy has really bolstered the business plan that we've been working off of for the last several years. So from a financial planning, there's nothing like you have to do in the details. This is more of a bigger picture uh, thinking about. Yeah. Uh, we have a question from an audience. Um, uh, the question is, utility scale solar versus distributed generation, which has been more profitable as a company? Great question. And it depends how you define profitability. <laughs> the, the, and the reason I say that, the margins can be very tight on utility scale, but they're very big. So I'm just going to make up a number of 10%, 10% on $100 million versus distributed gen that might get 20%, again, just making up these numbers, 20% on $5 million. So I'd say distributed gen is more um, profitable on the margin percentage basis, but because the projects are much smaller, the bulk of profits can come from the utility scale. But as you ramp up distributed gen, then it certainly can become more profitable. But it's a great question and, and one that we're grappling with and where we want to deploy resources. Great. And we do have another very specific question. These are great because they're coming from people with deep knowledge. Uh, does your company use mostly deploy fixed solar or tracker solar? Please elaborate on the decision regarding this. Yep, it's, it is interesting. And we primarily use tracking solar. So that means we have facilities that move our, our solar panels to track the sun so hmm. that they're doing the most efficient, um, getting the most efficiency out of the solar panels. And I believe we'll continue to do that and we'll continue to do more of that because the tracking devices are getting less expensive and as the panels are a really expensive um, portion of the capital that's deployed in a solar field, that being able to move them inexpensively is the economically right choice. However, having said that, there are some that we've made a decisions that the tracking, even once purchased, was not working well. I think older technologies, and we've made a decision to just have, have those fixed. So I think in certain applications or in certain situations, fixed works, but for the most part, um, 
tracking is is what we do and will continue to do. And I think tracking technology is going to get less expensive and therefore become even more economic. But yeah, that for us right now is the economic choice. Great. And uh, we have another, this is great because our audience is very knowledgeable. They, they totally understand where you're coming from. What is your average cost per kilowatt hour with new solar, new solar plants? What are your highest output panels producing power wise? Um, and how's that compared to panels from 2016? Is that super specific? <laughs> that is very specific and unfortunately so specific. Yeah, I can imagine. But, but I can say rel- <coughs> relative to 2016, costs have definitely come down. However, in the last two years, we've seen a spike in costs related to supply chain. But just as far as technology goes, the prices are coming down considerably mm. and are forecast to to continue to come down. Great. I wanted to take a step, a little step back from very specific, but very good questions. Um, and you mentioned this earlier about, you know, some of the discourse, whether it's in politics or culture around renewable energy. And, you know, some of the rumblings, especially with a, you know, a change in Congress about even rolling back some legislation. How do you think about that? How do you plan around that, those, those possibilities? You know, it's absolutely, it has been a policy-driven industry. Solar has been a policy-driven industry. And a lot of that... And it's, it's true of any new technology that it's needed um, a lot of policy push. And we'll continue to work with policymakers, but we also need to work to reach across the aisle to make sure that solar is not bipartisan, that we have partisan um, bipartisan support for solar, that both Republicans and Democrats are supporting the technology and the benefits. And you know, may, maybe different people have different views on those benefits. One is kind of the green economy and the benefits of, of that and the reduction in global warming. The other side of the coin is the benefits of a fuelless um, source of energy. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of national security interests at heart there. So both of those benefits absolutely exist from solar and maybe the two parties see those benefits differently but nonetheless everyone is getting benefits so it it's important that we don't have challenges from one party or the other against this technology as far as i can tell um solar doesn't have a party affiliation um it's it really is it's 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 been a challenge, though. There's a term in this industry called the solar coaster, <laughs> that the industry has peaks and valleys, and there, it goes up really fast and down really fast. And fortunately, a lot of that is related to public policy that changes with elections. And it's important that we stabilize that for this to be a industry that competes with other fuel sources and has stable growth 
as opposed to this solar coaster ride that we've seen in the past. But but even that's been dampened over the years as as this industry has grown. How difficult of a challenge is that for you as a financial executive? I mean, you you just said that you know a lot of the fortunes of the solar industry, and and I would think even the energy industry are dependent on you know public policy uh, choices. Um, how do you adapt to that as someone who's just you know really focused on the balance sheet and you know do you keep in constant contact with you know government relations people to understand in your planning how do you think about that yeah absolutely that our government relations folks are part of our team yeah. that is we're investigating you know um researching a market understanding those dynamics are absolutely at play but i will go one step further to say we're not just reacting to to the political landscape we're driving the political landscape mm-hmm. that we want to make sure we get in front of the policymakers to help them understand what the issues are and make the right decisions so absolutely that is a core component of our business model in working with with politicians and policymakers to understand what they're thinking, but also to, to drive their thinking. So you have a, a big part of our business. We're getting a couple more great specific questions from our audience. And uh, here's one. Are you using only your storage assets or are you using or pushing access power into storage assets deep in the grid, like home battery storage? Yeah, we're using storage at a much larger level than home storage. So ours is onto the grid Mm -hmm. and it's either at our solar fields or it's standalone storage. But it is, I would consider it utility scale storage or distributed um, storage, but not home storage. Great. Uh, We have another question uh, from an audience member, and it has to do with um, international. So it says, India, Indonesia, and China have underway large-scale construction of coal-driven power plants. What does Cypress Creek see as the long-term path for side-by-side development of coal, fossil fuels, and solar? What is your view of wind power? A lot there to unpack. Um, so as far as coal, um, it, and also that's an international question, Cyprus, just for reference, we only have operations in the United States. We think that's a big enough market with its own challenges that we, we don't need to go outside. But so I think there's kind of two questions. One in the global market, what do these different, you know, I'll call it the fuel stack, being nukes, coal, gas, wind, solar. And I think there will always be a place for fossil fuels in that stack. Um, although it's going to be a declining um, piece of the stack and a big driver to that is certainly going to be the, um, the ability to store power. The, the problem and the need for assets like um, um, fossil assets and nuke assets is to have that constant base load of energy mm-hmm. that solar or wind can't provide. 
But with energy storage, it can provide that base load. So I think that's a, a big driver. And I think resources like coal will continue to be on the decline, possibly, and I don't know about globally, but within the United States, we just won't have, have coal. California, for example, hasn't had coal for several years, or at least not none of the mm-hmm. um, investor-owned utilities. So I think that, that we will see declines on fossil fuels, and then we will see continued rapid growth in renewables. I think there was a question on um, the wind and my view on it. Also a a fan of of wind, but when I compare solar that sits on the ground with no moving parts (laughs) to something that's high up in the air with a lot of spinning moving parts, um, I do like solar. (laughs) (laughs) Makes sense. Um, we're getting somewhat near the end, but I, I want to ask a big picture question for you, you know, as we, we sort of wrap things together, where do you see solar in 10 years? And, and not just, you know, that question, but where does it sit as you, you were talking about in the energy stack where, what is solar's future? You know, it's really interesting. It's a great question. And whether this is five years from now or 15 years from now, and I'll just choose 10 years um, because that's what your question is, there are so many companies, so many um, governments, states that want to be carbon neutral by, say, 2030, and they're working towards that. And renewables are absolutely a component of, of of reaching those goals. By the same token, there's the, 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 I don't know if it's a desire or need to become more energy independent and people will be pressing for renewables for that reason. I found it fascinating that in your last call with the Halliburton chief accounting officer that he was talking about Halliburton a long-term fossil company getting into renewables. Mm. So you can see the major fossil companies <clears throat> getting deeply into renewables. So I, I just don't think there's anybody that would say renewables aren't going to be a major part of the energy stack. And then it just goes to how fast that transition happens. Is it five years, 15 years? But it is in the foreseeable future. I do believe a big piece of the of that question is how do renewables change the energy market? And it's a question of central station power that we we as a country have built our utility infrastructure system on central station power or utility scale. Mm. We have one big generating asset that then has wires that delivers that electricity through transmission lines to distribution lines into people's homes. With solar, you don't have the same economies of scale that you need those big central power stations. So distributed generation does make economic sense. And that really changes the the way the grid is built. (coughs) Excuse me. No. Thank you. 
you couple that with with storage mm. and i think we can see a very very different energy landscape in the future than we see today and how would you compare that to what what would you consider the most um what do you think the urgent issue is in renewables over the coming year what what do you what are you focused on in 2023 One of the biggest is supply chain, hmm. making sure that we have the panels. I, you know, I guess it's one of those nice places to be when you're less concerned about finding customers and more concerned about making sure you can serve those customers. Mm-hmm. Great. And for us, it's about serving the customers. We do have one final question from the audience. Uh, are there any other new technologies emerging that may envision helping solar become more affordable and the preferred source of energy? What are some of the bottlenecks to keep this from happening? So, so say that in the first part again. Are there any other new technologies emerging that you may envision helping solar become more affordable and the preferred source of energy? What are some of the bottlenecks to keep that from happening? Yeah, and... Again, it's the technology of the panels, which has really been coming down, and that certainly can drive drive savings. But in addition to that, there's all sorts of new technologies, just to name a few, um, understanding how solar panels get dirty. And mm. say we have panels in South Texas get a lot of dust on them there's a lot of dust but those can easily be cleaned with a good blast of air Mm. as opposed to panels in north carolina that get dirty and there's a little bit of sticky um, sap and those need to be cleaned with kind of robotic um i don't know they look a little bit like vacuum cleaners but they're they're spraying water at the same time that they're scrubbing Um, so robot technology also drone technology to monitor the sites. Um, there's new interconnection technology plus new energy storage technology. In addition to all of those truly new technologies, there's a little bit, if not a lot, of technological advances, much like Uber, in that Uber didn't create any new technology, but it put together a bunch of existing technologies to solve a problem. And that's what we're also seeing in in the solar market today. New tools, mapping tools that allow us to find the best location for solar. Um, In-pocket digital tools to let field personnel know exactly where they need to go, when they need to be there, and what they need to do, and have the right equipment on their truck. So there's all those sorts of kind of process improvements to what's a very new technology, you know, when you compare it to gas generation. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're, we're coming up with new ideas. The industry is coming up with new ideas every day that are, that are lowering that price curve. And I think this is a good question. We may be able to wrap it up on uh, since we're coming toward the end of our time. But it's good because I'm being called to account for answering the question of our our theme, which is, uh, can renewable energy save us? So, 
<laughs> can renewable energy save us? Absolutely. And in fact, I think it will save us. And I, I realize there's a lot of hyperbole. Yeah, yeah. That, both question and answer. But the, the reality is that it is a renewable but sustainable source of energy. And we need to continue to push on it. We need to continue to challenge to make sure we really are making the right economic decisions. But having a source of energy, fuelless source of energy that is reliable, absolutely is providing solutions to problems that we as a country are facing, um, whether that's on the geopolitical scale or just simply being able to have distributed generation in places like California where they have um, oh, rolling blackouts because of wildfires and having distributed generation eliminate the need for transmission lines. So depending what the, the problem is, solar is the solution or certainly can be the solution with the right policy um, maker support. So yes, it can save us. <laughs> great. Terrific. That was a great, great answer. And I want to really thank you for taking the time. This has been really informative. And I want to thank the audience for listening. And, and Trace, really, thank you. It's been very, very informative. Thank you. Uh, thank you. 